Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. We're going. Hey, guys, I'm Aurora. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I want to thank Dan. That was a really great lead. Um, I really enjoyed listening to that. So um, I'm Aurora. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is 11-19-2006. My home group is The Scum Also Rises. It's on Beacon Hill Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock. It's a really good meeting. So you guys come on down, Brave I-5, and come visit us. Um, I did get sober in Ballard, actually, like St. Paul's and the Fremont Fellowship. So this feels like home. And in fact, some of my favorite drunks and drug addicts are in this room right now. So although I'm really nervous, I can look at Sharon or I can look at Dwayne or my sponsor, Austri, and be like, oh, yeah, like we're just hanging out. Jessica over there. So um, so I grew up in Greenwood um, and, you know, my, in a functionally alcoholic home, I guess I would say. I mean, we didn't, we're, it was solidly middle class. Um, I had both my parents in the home. We celebrated cocktail hour. That was something that my family did on both sides. Um, you know, my mom's not a drunk. She's a really, really good codependent. Um, so she was, she still doesn't see everything that's right in front of her. Um, but she has an alcoholic husband and two alcoholic daughters. So, um, you know, I discovered, I mean, my first drunk, I was like four because booze was really readily available, but I was just, you know, drinking beer at the game. Um, and uh, just, you know, and actually in my baby book, my dad wrote baby's favorite drink is vodka OJ. Um, and he's like, that's kind of dark now, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, it's a little dark, but I mean, he's, he's a very funny guy. Um, so, um, I mean, I was exposed to alcohol and it was a normal thing. That's my point is that, you know, it was night. I was born in 78. So like I was born at the height of the party era or one of the party eras. And I was just brought to the parties and that was normal. Um, and so I grew up um, seeing that as a normal thing that people do. Um, and, you know, I discovered drinking in middle school, um, BT dubs. I am a middle school teacher now. Um, and uh, something that I dreamed about doing when I was a little kid um, that I had, I had thrown that dream and many other dreams away when I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, so uh, I discovered that in middle school. Um, I think most of us start feeling super disconnected and alienated at that time. Some of us have that our whole lives, but a lot of us discover that around 11. Um, and so I was one of those people that did that. Um, and so, excuse me. So um, actually, I don't. Oh, there's there's the number. All right. So I um, started stealing booze from my parents' liquor cabinet, and I'm a very like type A gold star person. I like getting good grades and stuff like that. So um, I would you know fill the bottles back to where they looked like, and so that and everything was very carefully arranged when I was pilfering drugs and alcohol from my parents. Um, and so I didn't really get found out very, um, very quickly until like eighth grade when I was like doing what is, was my MO for, uh, I don't know, until I turned 20, which is drinking until I puke and rage out. Um, and that's kind of like how I like to drink from the very beginning. I would get too drunk. I was the, um, I was the friend that we would have to be dragged out of places. I, um, 
was a friend who would like run my mouth and get uh, get into fights or that kind of stuff. Like I always was a pig for alcohol, um, but it made me feel amazing. You know, all of my shyness, all my social anxiety just went away. I could talk to cute boys. I could talk to the cool girls and feel like I was going to fit in. I It helped me break out of that type A type control stuff. Like I was free when I was drinking. It was great. But I immediately had consequences. Like from before I was even in high school, I had consequences for my drinking. And so those consequences kind of continued. It solved problems and then it caused problems. And that was my drinking. To anyone who's new in the room, I want to welcome. I forgot to do that at the beginning. But um, that's something that a lot of us have in common. It is a fix in a lot of ways, but then it ends up becoming much worse than whatever it is that we were fixing. So um I discovered drugs in high school. I'm not going to share a lot about that in this space, but um, it definitely is part of my story, and it helped me temper um, my drinking. And uh, uppers definitely do help with like being able to control the amount of, that you drink. Um, and I, you know, had, had, was having consequences in high school as well. Um, I drove drunk before I had my driver's license, and that is part of. I, what I did I, all over this neighborhood, actually, like between Greenwood and Ballard High School, like this a lot. Um, and so and I've thankfully never killed anyone with my car. But I think like a lot of my story is luck or grace is a word that I learned in here. Um, so I um, my drinking, like although it started out on the weekends, became a daily thing. And I built my life around drugs and alcohol. I built my life around hanging out with uh, the rebel kids and making bad choices. And and so um, that continued for, you know, up until I got sober, like I continued to build my life around that. I um, picked up a gnarly meth habit for a while. I put that back down around, and then I went to college and I studied art and I um, hung out with all the people who stayed up all night and drank whiskey. I like wasn't one of the prim and proper architecture students. I liked, I always gravitated towards the people that drank like I drank or preferably a little bit worse. Because if I drink with people who are sloppier than me, then I'm fine. Like, um, so the rendezvous, the old rendezvous, I was drinking there when I was 19. Um, the water wheel down over here, yeah, like I, I loved seeking out those really gnarly places and slumming it. Um, because then I would look like I had my stuff together. I'm trying also hard not to drop any profanity in this meeting. So, um, so I went to college. I um, became a bartender, and I continued to shape my life around booze. Um, and so I worked down on Ballard Avenue. That was like ground zero for a lot of my drinking. I became friends with the other bartenders. And like, I mean, every, I think every profession says, "Oh my God, if you're a construction worker, that's where all the alcoholics are. If you're a teacher, that's." That's where all the alcoholics are. If you're a bartender, that's also where all the alcoholics are. So um, I hung out with alcoholics. And like what that does when you build your life around that is it just normalizes it. It makes it look fine. And I did not want to look at anything. People that uh, commented on my drinking were out. Um, they just like, oh, you're drinking too much. Bye. You're not invited in my life anymore. <laughs> so clearly you don't know how to have fun. Um, so I, I continued to do that. Um, and at that point, I mean, I'm a daily drinker. Um, I'm drinking sometimes in the morning to 
deal with shakes. I'm still driving drunk. I'm still, I've lost jobs at this point. I've been in a series of relationships. One of my other beautiful family traits that I carry is that I like to, I'm a, I'm a mean drunk. I'm like my grandma drunk. Um, so I, uh, I have been really hurtful to the people that I care about, including my partners. So I would partner up with people and we would get into domestic violence situations. Um, and that's part of my story. Um, I've had a chance to make amends to those people, which is pretty amazing, um, even people who did me wrong. This program has allowed me to like own everything that I did and that was was my fault or that I had a part in. So that's pretty cool. Um, so <clears throat> in 2006, I moved to, I became a flight attendant. I um, had moved across the country a few times trying to outrun my drinking. I had changed jobs, boyfriends, uh, hair colors. I was just trying to change my life to like make me not a mess, right? I've tried all kinds of uh, Vipassana meditation. I detoxed in one of those 10 day retreats one time. I um, tried crystals and the Enneagram. I tried like a lot of things to like get okay up here so I could drink like a normal person. Um, and my last escape was moving to New Jersey to become a flight attendant. And I had this fantasy that I was going to travel the world with gay men and I was gonna get my hair cut in different cities and it was gonna be this really fabulous, like ab fab kind of life. Um, and it wasn't that at all because what happened is I took a pay cut of like $1,000 a month. And so um, like when I worked in Ballard, I could drink like I like to drink. I could pay my rent and I could buy a new pair of shoes every season, which means I have my stuff together. I'm not living under the bridge. I'm not living in any of those campers down there. So like my idea of an alcoholic is a, a bottle in a bag, right? So if I'm paying my rent and I have a roof over my head and I have like pretty reasonably cute shoes on, then I'm fine, right? And I think we all tell ourselves like what those people are like, because I'm fine. Um, and so when I moved there, I had to take a pay cut and all of a sudden my everything was out of balance. I also didn't have my mom close by to bail me out of situations. I didn't really know where I was. So all of a sudden, like, well, for example, I used to look down my nose at women that would like get use their boobs or their femininity for free drinks. I'm like, I'm a baller. I will buy drinks for everyone. Um, and so I had to start like lowering my shirt a little bit to like get free drinks because I couldn't afford to drink like I like to drink. Um, and that was really like I would wake up like a lot of mornings and just go, ew. Right. So it's like there was that. And then there was um, the fact that I was getting drunk in hotel bars all over the country by myself, which is real dangerous. Like I started I hitchhiked for the first time and um basically try to exchange uh, the person buying me booze to and getting me to the airport and sex. Um, and then when we got there, I changed my mind. Like I was like a hot mess um, and I was trying to make it work and, but I couldn't stay drunk enough. Um, and so it was, it was really scary. Um, and so I had a friend out in Brooklyn who was like, um, I was like, I think I might be an alcoholic. I might have a problem. And she's like, you're fine. And then she took me out that night and they locked me, they ended up locking me in a bathroom um, because I was too wasted and they wanted to go back out. And I crawled out the window and like was scaling walls in like this neighborhood I didn't know. The next day she's like, I think you might have a problem. And I'm like, <laughs> so she's still a really good friend. And, and, and I love that story and I love that human because her name's Peaches because Peaches drink just like I drank. And that was really confusing to me because she drank just like I drank. We would party with hobos. We would drink so much whiskey. But 
If she ever had to be at work the next day, she would stop drinking at a sensible hour. What? <laughs> right? If she ever like was like, oh, I'm, I'm, my stomach's hurting. I'm just going to have three. And then she would just have three. And I didn't, that confused me. And I spent years trying to drink like other people and trying to uh, negotiate with my drinking and wondering what's wrong with me. Why can't I keep it together when it looks like everyone else is keeping it together? So, I mean, I tried, I switched to white wine for a summer and white, white wine spritzers. I ended up getting very bloated from all the carbonation because <laughs> I'm like double timing to try to get the right amount of drunk, right? Or, um, <clears throat> Switching to liquor that I don't like the taste of. I liked whiskey within three days, Christmas of like 04, I think. Um, I At the time that I was stopping drinking, I had switched to scotch. Uh, disgusting. And um, and the bartender would say, like, what would you, what kind would you like, the black label or the red label? I'm like, I don't care. It's all gross. And the bartender would be like, what? Why are you ordering this thing? Because I need something outside of me to help me control my drinking. Because I cannot control my own drinking. Once I put a little bit of alcohol in me, all of my plans are gone. Like I would take only $20 to the bar. That does not work if you have boobs. It doesn't. It doesn't even matter. Like what, like if you, like, it just doesn't. You can get free drinks from someone. So, I mean, all of my little plans for how I was going to try to only have two or three or I was going to take today off, all those little games I would play with myself, waking up every day being like, I'm not drinking today. By four o'clock, every single time I would change my mind. And I really thought that I was changing my mind and that I was in control of the situation. And as it turns out, there's a book about that. <laughs> and... Um, my sister actually gave me a copy of this. Um, she got sober or clean three months before I did, and she suggested that I read, read this. And so I was living in New Jersey in this sad place, and this is available online, and I was like reading through it, and I was like, oh my God, they know me. Um, and so I continued to drink for a while after that, but once I had read this book, there a seed was planted. And they talk about that like, those moments of clarity, I started having those moments of clarity where I realized like this isn't just fun and games and I'm never going to get out of this unless I do something different. My dad, who's an alcoholic, would always say, well, you're going to grow out of it, honey. I'm like, but you're 30 years ahead of me and you haven't grown out of it. This logic does not work. But I mean, but he was fine, right? He was perfectly functional, except for the fact that he's dependent on drugs and alcohol. Um, and his life looks like that, right? So um, I was uh, pretty miserable, pretty crazy, and I read this book, and it described my affliction, and I was like, I knew, right? And so, um, so I went out. I, as a flight attendant, you have to like not drink for eight hours before you start your shift. Drunk flight attendants and pilots is not a good thing. So um, I went on shift at midnight. Um, so at 4 p.m., I had like scraped myself off a floor like hours away, and I was like sadly taking the train home with my tail between my legs, like this is hard. And um, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go start my shift, and like I'll be fine, I'll make it through this. And I walked by the Irish bar, and I went, hmm. And then I was like, oh no, you're not gonna go do that. You have to be at work. You like, and I'm like, well, I mean, I'm homesick, and they have Red Hook beer in there. And um, so that's, and, and this part of my brain was like, BS. 
And I was like, okay, well, but I mean, they're only $2. That's a bargain. Like everything in this, this part of the country is so expensive. Like a Budweiser is $6. So this is a bargain. I'm like sale number two. And the voice in my head, which I now know is God was like nonsense. And I, and I was like, well, I'm just going to go have one or two. And the voice in my head was like BS. And I was like, fine brain, I'm going to get drunk. And my brain was like, all right. And I went and got drunk. But the difference was that I knew what I was doing. I knew that I had blown through all of my little excuses. I had, I was doing the walk of shame like that moment. I was basically giving up my job and I was like, I'm doing it anyway. Fine. And so it wasn't like this oopsie daisy. I lost my job. Like I actually went into it knowing what I was doing and because I had read this book and this book kind of really clarifies a lot of that kind of stuff. So, um, I went in, I got wasted, I ranted about how there was no Frank Sinatra in the uh, karaoke book and had a bunch of people staring at me. I don't know if you've ever been the drunkest person in the room and had people like, yikes, get that girl a cab. Like I had that, the whole bar looking at me like I'm clearly the drunkest person. That's not a great place to be, but um, it was common for me. Um, so I went home and I had to call out drunk to my job. I, well, I just quit. I didn't tell him I was drunk. That would be silly. But um, I called out and quit my job. And for me, for whatever reason, that clicked something in me because I had always told myself I had my stuff together. Um, so it was like crashing multiple cars. That was fine. That's all fun and games. I'm a wild child. Um, beating people up, also part of the bohemian lifestyle, right? Um, <laughs> But my part of my story is that I'm okay if I work and pay my rent. So when I had to give up my job for whatever reason, it clicked. And I was like, maybe I don't have everything together. And so I went to my first meeting that night. I actually had to take a cab five blocks because I was so dehydrated that I could not walk there. Um, and a woman named Pauline, like, was out standing outside smoking a cigarette and she like grabbed my hand and brought me into the meeting and, and I haven't had to have a drink since. And, um, that's not everyone's story, but it's actually a lot of people's story. Like you don't have to relapse. I was told very early on, you don't have to drink again. And for me so far, that has been true. Um, I've had a lot of friends relapse. I've lost a lot of friends who went back out and didn't come back in. Um, particularly with the drugs, that stuff is even harder. But, but even with alcohol, I've watched close friends drink themselves to death in this program that used to be pillars of AA, but life didn't go well or their way or whatever. Um, and they took a drink and they didn't get to come back. So, um, so I landed here. I, I tail between my legs back to my mom's couch. Um, in North Seattle and I landed in AA and my sister was here, which was really awesome. Um, she had disappeared on meth for like five years. And so she was back and doing this program too. And it was a really miraculous thing. She and I did not get along our entire lives. This program has allowed us to have a relationship and even a really like positive relationship. Although we still do this, um, it's much less so. So, um, I came to the Fremont Hall was like the first place that I went and, um, <clears throat> immediately was like trying to get my Mac on with some bikers. Um, and uh, and uh, this woman named Rochelle swooped in and was like, you're pouring coffee. And uh, so I have to give a really big thanks to those people that like intervened in my life and helped point me in the right direction because um, it's easy to get distracted when you're newly sober and really jacked up on like strong coffee in an AA meeting. But like this program is about us helping each other stay sober. And one of the things Rochelle taught me, in addition to like teaching me how to make really strong coffee at the Fremont Hall, was um, that 
I can start doing um, the steps 10, 11, and 12 right away if I want. Um, and for those of you guys, some people may not agree with that. And there is the whole steps are written in order for a reason. But the 10, 11, and 12 are the maintenance steps. And she said that I could start helping other people immediately, which is part of the step, the 12 step. The 12 step is like carrying the message and also um, practicing these principles in all our affairs. So me um, setting up chairs, reaching my hand out to somebody who might have 30 minutes less than me, um, that was something I started doing immediately. And I'm convinced that that more than anything else has really saved me because I was a very vehemently... Uh, what's the word? Atheistic. Um, when I came in and I was not doing the God thing, I definitely did not like the, the, thou, he, him, he is the father and we are the children. I could not handle any of that. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted to take a break from my drinking and figure things out. Um, so I was very like resistant to, um, the, the language in the program and to people who looked like they had it together. Um, so service really helps me stay in these rooms until I was ready to like forge a spiritual path that is my own and, and, you know, find a higher power that works for me. Um, so, you know, the 12th step has initially, um, I had a pack of smokes. I had a 91 Honda Civic and I had a lot of free time because I was unemployed and living on my mom's couch. So um, that's what I had to give when I was brand new, was rides to meetings, cigarettes, and that's it. I was definitely had no wisdom <laughs> to share with people, but that helped get me through. Um, and as I've stayed sober longer, I've been able to serve in a lot of different ways. I was the cake maker at Agape for a few years, um, and I sponsored women who had chickens, and we had like fresh eggs in those cakes. I have finally, at 10 years, gotten roped into general service, which is turning out to be kind of awesome, but I was really dreading that for a while. I have served AA in, in my group and other alcoholics in a variety of ways. Um, and there's a trick to that, serving a meeting. Like when you become coffee maker, it's not about the coffee. I mean, although alcoholics will get mad if their coffee is not ready, um, but it's about like all of a sudden the meeting isn't the meeting you go to, it's your meeting. When you start, when you start making coffee, all of a sudden, like that rando that walks in, you're like, welcome to my meeting. This is your home. Like it's my home. And so all of a sudden you become part of the thing. So there's a trick to it, but it's a good trick, right? So if you don't have a service position, pick one up because those really, um, really help connect you. I didn't know how to connect to people in a real way. I think we heard that earlier. Like without liquid courage, how could I talk to anyone or forge any real relationships? So, um, being in, a, in an AA group where we're all, all, I'm not gonna say we're all equally crazy, but we're all on that spectrum of crazy. Like we can share in a really honest and beautiful way um, and and make real friendships. And not it's not about fronting and it's not about looking cool. Um, although we all go through that, right? I think that like those of us who started drinking in middle school are still emotionally there. In a lot of ways, I definitely have a bratty 13 year old girl in me often. So um, the 12th step has really helped me. I think uh, I just read the 11th step with a sponsee this morning, um, you know, practicing prayer and meditation to continually seek um, for what my higher powers will is for me. That's like a really big chunk for those newcomers. But basically, it's like developing a, a prayer and meditation practice that works for you. And also kind of just remembering that you are not steering the ship or the boat or whatever. It's um, 
that's something like when I first came in, Rochelle gave me this tip and I'm not a praying, I was not a praying person. Although there were a few times when I had taken too many drugs that I prayed to like, let me come down. I promise I'll never do it again. Um, or get me out of this. I promise I'll never do it again. Praying to whatever. But, um, when I first came in, she said, well, why don't you just try this in the morning? Say, please help me stay sober today in the evening. When you've stayed sober that day, say, thank you for helping me stay sober today. And I did that. And I will say as a big naysayer, that's not going to work. It works. So um, that worked for me. Just the very simple act of like setting those intentions. And I think for me, it's the asking for help, like putting my hands out and saying, uncle, I think a lot of this program works for me and giving up the fact that I know the best way to do everything. And I know how the things are supposed to turn out. So, um, Let's see here. I'm sorry, my mouth is really dry. Um, so the 11th step and me like starting to forge a relationship with a higher power, basically that was what my prayer life looked like was please and thank you. Um, later on, I started asking for direction. You get there where you're like, oh, I'm not in charge of everything and I, and I don't know what's best. And that was an easy one for me to know because I could look at the burning dumpster fire of my life and know that I don't know what's best. I have lots of grand schemes and ideas, but the way it plays out, I don't know what's best. I tend to do like, I tend to run from things that are hard. I tend to grab onto and like try to wrest control from things that don't actually work in my life. Like I don't really know what's best for me in a lot of instances. So um, asking people that are wiser than me, asking a higher power has really helped. Um, and then also the 10th step was something that I started doing pretty immediately, not perfectly, but basically the 10th step is if you make a mess, clean it up. Um, and so a lot of that was, I'm sorry I was just a B to you. Like when I'm rude to someone, apologizing to someone and saying, I didn't, I didn't show up the way that I wanted to show up. I treated you rudely. Or, oh, thank you so much. Uh, I'm dying. Or um, I got a job back in the restaurant I used to work in, um, and taking money out of the till was one of my big issues, especially if the till was over. Because um, why should my boss get that money? I'm here busting my butt for that money. Like if the till's over and there's no one here, it's my money. So like putting that money back, that was a big spiritual step for me. Not stealing Sharpies and just being feeling like entitled to what the world has was a big thing for me. Um, me actually saying, like, I have a problem saying yes when I mean no. I should say I don't have that problem anymore. I've been doing this for 10 years. But initially, I would say yes to everything because I want people to like me. Um, and so part of my 10th step was actually saying, you know what? I said I committed to that, but I really don't have time for that or I really don't want to do it. But it doesn't matter. Like, I, I developed the ability to say no, um, which was a really big spiritual step for me because I would say yes to stuff that didn't fit with my, who I really want to be and who I think God wants me to be. Um, that's been a big part of my issue on this planet is the fact that I say yes when I mean no. So learning how to do that was a really powerful thing. Um, and now in my current sobriety, I still use these steps all the time. I deal with 11 to 14 year olds and I have to make amends to my students like every day. Uh, it depends on the week. But I mean, I do have to say to my students, like I apologize for being snappy with you. That's not how I want to show up with you. Like there wasn't definitely an issue with what, what went down. Like I'm not relieving them of blame, but I still didn't show up as a compassionate human being. 
Um, and so I use that and it, it's all of these steps are very transformative to my relationships. Like I get to have those relationships. Um, and the 10, 11, 12 are still play out in my daily life, like practicing the principles um, in all of my affairs. I try to do that. Um, it's easy to like come into this program and like read the book and learn the language and start talking about it, but actually living it can be really challenging, especially when I want what I want and I'm a scaredy cat. Like that combination of like being a petulant, I want it, and I'm also afraid of a lot of things in life. Um, I'm still learning how to turn turn those fears over to God because I decided in this program that um, that I do believe in a higher power, and it's a big higher power. It's more powerful than we can even know. I'm happily and comfortably agnostic, right? Of, and that works for me. Um, so I have to constantly remind myself when I get like wrapped up in that I want it this way, it has to turn out this way, um, and it's going to turn out this way, that I don't know. And I think that like I don't know still is like the, the cornerstone of my spiritual life. Um, and there's like, that's just my experience. So like, there's at least, I don't know, I can't do visual math. There's a lot of people in here and each person in here is working that in a way that works for them. So if you are new, I highly recommend getting with someone who's worked the steps. Um, you will find your own path in this program, something that works for you. Even if you're a big naysayer and you're a grumpy pants, you will still find something, someone, some way that works for you. And you don't have to drink again. Uh, um, that was told to me. And so far it's been true. So, um, if you're, you know, if you're in this room and you're wondering if you're an alcoholic, um, somebody said to me a long time ago, like non-alcoholics don't wonder if they're alcoholic. Um, <laughs> so I was like, Oh, well, that's an easy, that's an easy equation. I can do that. No one who's not an alcoholic goes, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic or not. They just sit in church basements and wonder that I think. Um, so I guess welcome to the club. If you're new, um, with this, the, the, these are the people who survived their own lives, who are not in the penitentiary, who are not dead on an OD or a drunk driving accident. These are all the funnest people that actually lived through it. Um, and that was something that I didn't understand. I was like, all these people have like matching socks and nice cars. Like these people aren't alcoholics. It's just been a while since their last drink. That's really the, the thing. So they look normal, but we're all, I will say, we're all the fun ones who have survived our own fun. Um, so um, that is all I have. And I thank you guys for letting me share tonight. I am Teresa, I'm an alcoholic. I am nervous, and I have no idea why. It's not the first time, but um, but it's probably the lack of control, the fact that I've never been to this meeting before, and I don't know most of you. Hi, Greg. <laughs> I know one. Um, so my last drink was uh, October 17th, 2003. Um, I have a sponsor who has a sponsor, and I've sponsored women. Um, I'm originally from Detroit, and uh, I got sober there. And I moved here in 2005, done a little bit of moving around since, but been here for the better part of the last, what is it, 12 years. Um, so my story, I, um, I grew up in an alcoholic home. Um, I knew for sure for a very long time that my dad was an alcoholic. Um, but I always used to say that the jury was still out about my mom. Um, their drinking looked really different. Um, mom's drinking was pretty much every day, maybe one or two. I may have seen her drunk a couple times, but dad's drinking was like full out every weekend. I can tell you even today at 86 years old, he is at the bar from 12 to 6 on Saturdays and Sundays um, and doesn't have a beer before 5 o'clock during the week. 
And um, needless to say, I'm in another program too. Um, <laughs> but, um, but it was confusing growing up for a lot of reasons. I think that, you know, dad's drinking was confusing for me, seeing all the chaos that went along with that. Um, but also my dad's from Cuba and my mom is French, Canadian, German, and Irish. So I'm a little bit of a lot and, um, you know, it was really confusing for me. Um, and I had a really hard time with adjusting, fitting in like so many of us talk about. Uh, but I thought, you know, I was that unique one. Um, I went to school, predominantly white school, both for grade school and for high school, we moved to the suburbs of Detroit uh, when I was midway through high school. And when I told people I was Cuban, they said um, they thought I was Hispanic. And um, they had no, like, familiarity at all with um, different cultures, I guess. And so it just made it hard, and I was constantly trying to fit in. And I remember making a conscious decision when I was about 18 that if I was going to like these people, I was going to need to drink with them. And, you know... That wasn't really where it started. I, I started experimenting. I think I had my first cigarette when I was nine and um, started smoking pot when I was 12 and um, drinking wine coolers, but that felt like too much work. Um, and so, um, you know, started skipping school in ninth grade and just really wasn't going down a good path. Started out in Catholic school, went to public school and kind of went downhill from there. And... Um, I just wanted to be a part of, I wanted to belong. I wanted to not be different. And that's what drinking has always done for me. It made me feel uh, a part of, um, I could go outside and smoke a cigarette with you. I could do a shot with you. I could somehow, you know, feel like I had this sense of belonging, but it was so artificial. There were, there weren't any real connections for me because it was all centered around the drugs and the alcohol, mostly alcohol and smoking cigarettes. And I quit smoking cigarettes for the first time when I was 19 who quits anything when they're 19? Um, but it didn't last very long. Um, you know, my, my drinking was very progressive. It, um, you know, I started out doing a little bit here and there, then doing it regularly. I was never a daily drinker. I was uh, more of a, you know, weekend warrior, Friday night, happy hour, um, and would pretty much um, blackout either Friday or Saturday night every weekend. Um, the progressiveness was, first it was passing out in my friend's back seats. Um, and then it was, um, getting sick and then it was, um, blacking out and waking up in places where I didn't know where I was. Um, I remember once thinking I was very clever because I checked the mail at this person's house to figure out where I was to have my friend come and get me. Um, you know, my bar just kept, uh, getting lower and lower and the things I said I would never do, I ended up doing and then some, and I was full of shame all the time. Um, and you know, in some ways I felt like my dad and I had this camaraderie because he even hung out at some of the same bars that I did and we would drink together. Um, and so I would belong in that way, but I, again, knew it wasn't real and, and knew that I didn't want to one day be a parent like him. Um, and it, it's been a miracle in the sense that, you know, I've, I've found my way here. I was, I think 23. Three, the, actually, for the first time, um, I thought about having a problem. I was about 23, and I went to a therapist, and I said, I experienced some trauma as a child. Um, I, I want to talk about my dad's alcoholism, and by the way, I think I might be an alcoholic too. And um, he, he asked me questions about whether or not I had ever blacked out, and at that time, I didn't think I had. 
And so um, he pretty much dismissed me and said that I didn't have a problem and I didn't need to be there. And so after that, I was constantly looking for that blackout and for that benchmark of uh, what my drinking um, looked like and if it wasn't normal anymore. And so about two years later, when I turned 25, I remember seeing somebody across the room and then waking up next to him the next morning. And I remember absolutely nothing in between. And I was scared to death because I didn't know if I was going to get sick. I didn't know, you know, any of the myriad of issues you have when you wake up and you don't recognize everybody in the room. Um, and so um, I went to my first meeting. I made sure I went to the east side of town, which in Detroit is nothing like the east side of town here in Seattle. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I didn't, I didn't recognize anybody. Uh, and so I went and I sat at the table with the men and I promptly was moved to the table with the women. And, uh, and just, I got a newcomer's pamphlet. I got phone numbers and I went home, um, was living with my mom or my parents at the time and asked my mom um, if she thought I needed to go back. Uh, and that's a big part of my story. So looking for permission from someone else. I want somebody else to tell me what to do with my life. Um, and so, she, of course, she told me that I didn't need to be here. And and so I didn't come back. And then for the next five years, it progressively got worse. The blackouts got uh more and more frequent, the regret, um, that sick feeling in my stomach, my really strong desire to commit suicide. Um, that started probably when I was about 14 and, um, it ended, um, around the time I came here. So like I said, I, I came the first time when I was 25 and didn't come back until I was 30. So it was actually about six weeks after I had turned 30. And I had had another one of those blackouts. This time it was a work function. And this time seemed different because I wasn't just blacking out and embarrassing myself around strangers. This was around people I worked with. And so it was that incomprehensible demoralization that the book talks about. And that's what I needed. You know, I don't have the hospitalizations, the DUIs, all of that in my, in my story. But what I do have is that embarrassment, that sick to my stomach, just want to crawl in a hole and die embarrassment. And for me, that's what I needed. Um, and so I ended up getting a phone call um, the night after this work function and somebody saying, I heard we kissed last night. So many things wrong with that sentence. <laughs> um, but that was my aha moment. That was the moment where I was like, I am you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired and I didn't want to go through this anymore. I didn't want to get phone calls like that anymore. And, and so I just made a decision that I knew that the root of all my problems was my drinking. I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I didn't want to drink anymore. And so, um, about two days later, I called a friend and said, nobody's ever heard anybody smoking pot, right? Like I could totally do that and be okay. And, you know, again, looking for permission and she didn't give it to me. Um, she, she said, that's completely up to you. And what I missed is that weekend, I pretty much considered suicide the entire weekend. Um, I didn't eat. I didn't even drink any water. Um, I prayed to God and I prayed to um, my friend Eric, who had committed suicide earlier that year. Um, and and so I went to see a therapist that Wednesday. Um, she recommended I go to two meetings a week. Um, and so I remember so vividly my first meeting. And um 
So I, that was a Friday. And on Saturday, I thought, maybe I'll go back to another meeting. And I was like, mm, no, I mean, let's not overreact. <laughs> so, so I went to a meeting on Sunday and I met a woman and asked her to be my sponsor. And she suggested 90 meetings in 90 days. And, uh, you know, we, she wanted to do the work together. Oh, and by the way, no dating, which I thought was a ridiculous request. Um, and, and we started working together and I did 90 meetings in 90 days, three times in a row because, you know, I'm a good alcoholic addict. I like to do things, you know, to the extreme. Um, but if you're new, the 90 meetings in 90 days was crucial to, to my being able to stay sober. Um, and it seems like a lot and it seems like you're too busy, um, but you're not because we invest a heck of a lot more time and money in our drinking. And so it's just an important way to, to find the places that you like. You're not going to like everywhere you go. Um, you might not even like a lot of the places you go, but you'll end up finding um, a handful of meetings that really work for you. And that, that was my experience. So, you know, coming to a and making connections with people in a way that I was looking for um, when I was, when I was drinking has been nothing short of miraculous. You know, I, I don't contemplate suicide anymore. Um, I volunteered at a suicide hotline, um, back in Michigan. I can share my experience, strength and hope with you guys. And, um, I just know that the struggle and the pain that I've experienced is to be able to share it with the rest of you. You know, I've been in those places, right? Like I've, I've been hopeless. I've thought, little to nothing of myself. I mean, when I thought about suicide the weekend that I drank, the last weekend I drank, I thought the only reason why I didn't want to do it was I didn't want to upset my mom and I didn't want anybody to find my messy apartment. So um, the ego that came into play, um, even at the thought of death and not wanting somebody to see that I wasn't organized, um, um, it's just, it was such a, a journey to realize how self-centered um, I can be, how much fear I have. And, you know, I've learned here that the root of any anger I have is fear, you know. I, so I try to stop and think about what is it that I'm fearful of when I am angry about something. And, um, you know, last night I went um, to a concert. I took my soon-to-be stepdaughters to Lady Gaga and... Um, I think about um, all the drinking I did at concerts, and I saw a number of people passed out before they ever got into the concert, and and that was me, right? And you know, the girls said to each other, "Oh, could you imagine something like that happening?" And I was like, hmm. <laughs> "As a matter of fact," <laughs> and um, you know, I I just I see the way um, that my fiance raises his daughters and. Um, it's, it's not the way I was raised and that's not in, you know, not a way to, to be disrespectful to my parents because they did the absolute best that they could. Um, but they can see his love in a way that I just wasn't able to see, you know, with, with my family. And so I was constantly aiming for that. You know, I wanted the affection of my dad. I wanted, you know, all of these things that I didn't feel like I was receiving. And I think in some ways I wasn't getting it, but in other ways I wasn't willing to get it either. Um, what I've learned about myself since I've gotten here is I like to pursue unavailable people, you know, and that might be in dating or was, don't worry, honey, not dating anymore. Um, <laughs> um, or uh, it might be with friends, you know, um, there were times when I first moved here that um, there were people that I would ask to hang out and they would say no, but I would keep asking, you know, and, you know, 
whatever the case is, like I can do that. And it's as if, I don't know, what's that saying? I want to say it's Woody Allen. I don't know if it's right. Um, I don't want to belong to any club that I'm invited to. Ah, Groucho Marx. Thank you. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I didn't feel like the people in my life that wanted to be in my life were worth me having in my life, if that makes sense. And, and I know that that was some warped sense of, of my self-esteem, um, from, you know, things that happened when I was a kid and, and, um, just the way I handle myself now as an adult. And I remember thinking, you know, again, that last weekend that anything that was going to happen in the future was going to be better than what I experienced in my past. And I often think about my sobriety date as what could have been the anniversary of my suicide. And, um, when I think about the fact that, you know, I had a plan and, you know, I think about all the, the, um, hopelessness that I felt, you know, um, the self-centeredness, the fear, the, the fact that, you know, I didn't want people talking about me at work. I worked in an advertising agency at the time and it was like straight out of Mad Men, you know? So like the, by the next weekend, there was somebody else that had, you know, been drunk and disorderly that they could worry about, you know? And, and it just didn't seem like that at the time. It seemed like it was never going to change. And, you know, again, if you're new and you're in the middle of something that feels hopeless, like it's temporary and, and that's something that I have to remind myself even now when things are hard is that it feels like it's going to be last forever, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, right? Like things change. And so, um, continuing to come and, you know, go to meetings with, um, you know, a good amount of frequency has really changed my life. So, you know, um, I was talking with a friend and they were asking like, why do you have to keep coming? Or is this something that you're going to continue to do and why? And I just want to be a better person. You know, I, I, I know that I have something to offer now, um, which I really couldn't see that before. I, I, I pretty much thought that you would be indifferent about me. And, uh, and now I see that I have something to contribute. And, and that's something that I wouldn't have been able to see before. There are a lot of like negative messages I got as a kid. And those are the ones I remember, right? Like it's, it's a lot harder to remember the positive ones, the ones that stand out are the negative. And so now I try to turn that around and focus on the positive, um, and not the negative. And obviously that doesn't always, um, work out as well as I want it to, but that's what the steps are here for. And that's why I've continued to work them. I also don't think I'm a big proponent for working them multiple times. I don't think working them just once is enough. Um, you know, to talk a little bit about, um, some of the steps, I've done the four step about four times now, and I've had very different experiences every time. Um, the first time was really brief. I think about, you know, sobriety and the way that we think about our past and the people in it, like we're really tightly bound when we're, when we first get here. And so for me, there was only a limited number of people that I could come up with for that list. And then over time, I've just loosened up, you know, and I was able to think about more people. I think I had 10 people on my first one and about 200 on my third one. <laughs> Apparently I can hold a grudge. Um, but, but the beauty of that is I can look at it at a different level now. And I can think about not just the people that I feel have wronged me, but the people that I've wronged. Um, and you know, they talk about amends being the definition is to change, right? Not just to make an apology. And so it's looked so differently with, with every person. I remember making a, a financial amends, um, with a friend and being so proud of myself, you know, it was $1,500 and I was handing her a check and it was actually before I had done the formal work on my four step, but I wanted to be able to pay this money back. And she 
saw me at the door. She took the money. She turned and put it down and then said, okay, so what about, you know, ABC, all these other things that I had done? <laughs> and I remember so vividly, like, my knees buckled and, like, I was like, well, I don't know, you know? And, um, and so it was just really scary. And it's, I mean, that's another sort of, you know, affirmation that we need to work these steps and we need to work them with a sponsor. I got, um, the Joe and Charlie tapes, um, for those of you that don't know what they are, they're, um, ask around. It's something that's really, um, helped me a lot in my sobriety, but it outlines the steps. And so they came in cassette tapes at that time. I'm dating myself. Uh, but it was this big package of cassette tapes and right at my 90 days of sobriety, I had gotten into a car accident. My car was totaled. Um, I lost my job. It was like a really bad country song. And um, and so my mom um, let me borrow her car. And for about a week, I was able to listen to these tapes nonstop. And it was such a gift. I didn't have a tape player in my other car. And so I went home and, and I said, Mom, I'm so excited. You know, thank you for letting me borrow your car. I was able to listen to all these tapes. And she was like, honey, that tape player hasn't worked in years. So it was just one of those um, moments that made me realize that this stuff is all happening for a reason. Um, and people come into my life for a reason. Uh, the lessons that I've experienced all happen for a reason. And, you know, in order, just like the steps are. Um, you know, when I did my fourth step um, the second time, I had a sponsor that I worked with um, that was in a lot of pain herself. And this isn't something that I feel like we talk about very often, but I think it's important. Um, we're all human and we all have flaws, right? And this person, I don't think, was in the right space to be listening to my four-step and kind of told me everything I did wrong um, and told me things I she felt I missed in not a loving and kind way. And um, I really was uncomfortable during this fourth step and fifth step, but sat there and took it because I didn't want to make an amends later. And so, um, so the next day I went to a women's meeting, um, which again, a uh, big shout out for, for that, for women's meetings. Um, if you're a woman, <laughs> um, um, and, and I was able to get this validation that the experience I had was not okay. Um, and so I ended up not continuing to work with that sponsor and working with somebody else. And, and that's just where she was, right? Like it, it didn't, you know, right, wrong. I, I don't know, but, um, we were just not supposed to work together at that time. And I actually, that was about eight years ago and I ran into her about two months ago and she actually made an amends to me. And, um, I never would have expected that, but it was just such another, you know, example of the miracle that this program is. Um, we still continue to make mistakes and be imperfect in sobriety. Um, things happen, but, um, I don't know, we can, we can come back and we can make amends. We can still continue to change. Um, there's a part of me that thought everything was going to get fixed when I got here and I promptly realized that that wasn't going to happen. Um, but I also know now that the work that I've done on myself, continuing to write and journal, have a gratitude list, reach out to a sponsor, be willing to sponsor other women. Um, that's life changing, you know, being able to show up and get out of my own head long enough to talk to somebody else about their problems, um, is huge. And, you know, if you, again, if you're new or if even if you're not and you hesitate to call other people, um, just know that they're willing to take your call and you're probably calling again, like I said, for a reason. Um, it, it just, there's something magical that happens when we listen to somebody else for a while and get out of our own head. I can sit 
sit and spin over and over again about the silliest of things. But if my head's in the right place and I'm focused on my meetings and talking to my sponsor, um, those things are a heck of a lot less likely to happen. Um, I know that I have more time left, but I actually feel like I'm um, all done. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.